0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for January 13, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm delighted to welcome you to another edition of our program, it's your source each Friday, for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. This week's show will examine two recent rulings, one from the Ninth Circuit and one from California's Supreme Court, both of which in different contexts clarified and solidified the rights of class action plaintiffs. Neil Martyr from Aiken Gump will visit first to discuss a Ninth Circuit food mislabeling suit in which the appellate panel deepened a circuit split by deciding Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23 did not require a class of plaintiffs to affirmatively demonstrate that their suit is administratively feasible in order to receive class certification. Plaintiffs in that case, Brasenio v. ConAgra Foods, filed suit after purchasing GMO-containing cooking oil that had been labeled as all-natural. Conagra contended that certifying such a class courted administrative headaches considering the the difficulties in identifying and assuring proper class members. Conagra also contended that these same concerns jeopardized the defendant's due process rights. Mr. Martyr will explain why the panel disagreed and what its ruling means not just for food product defendants, but any parties that might tend to face large class actions centered around low-cost items. Next, the show hosts three guests for a lively panel debate about the California Supreme Court's bellwether ruling in Augustus v. ABM Security Services, which paints a seemingly bright-line rule against employers requiring employees to remain on call during paid rest breaks. The court split five to two, with Justice Cuellar pending the majority opinion and Justices Kruger and Corrigan dissenting, found that the burden of remaining on call was such that employees could not Truly rest during those state mandated rest periods. Our guests Laura Rutherford from Venable LLP and Richard Bridgeford and Mike Artinian from Bridgeford, Gleason, and Artinian will debate the legal grounding of this ruling, its policy implications, and whether the enunciated rule that employers are categorically forbidden from disturbing their employees on their rest breaks is indeed as bright as it seems. Before we get to my guests, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having tuned in to our program. Just find a link to a short true-false test at the bottom of the page where this podcast appears on the Daily Journal site. Also, one other piece of housekeeping news, we're excited to announce that our episode next week will feature a former Solicitor General of the United States, Mr. Donald Verrilli, will be on the show, who served as Solicitor General under Barack Obama and now maintains a post at the Munger-Tolls office just opened in Washington, D.C., So we're excited about that. For now, without any further preamble for me, let's get to our guests. First, my conversation with Neil Martyr on the case of Brasenia vs. ConAgra Foods. Very happy to be joined by Neil a partner with Aiken Gump here in Los Angeles, focuses on a range of areas, including complex and business litigation. Mr. Martyr, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: We're talking about the case of Brasenia vs. ConAgra Foods, a ruling from the Ninth Circuit, in December, a fairly significant case in the world of uh, food labeling suits and more generally class actions and uh, class action certifications. The the ruling enunciates a new rule or refines the rule or clarifies the existing rule um, as to when classes and cases like this can be certified. So let's go ahead and jump in to the the federal rule of civil procedure that pertains to that uh, rule 23. And could you describe to me just to lay out the context here what the prescriptions of that rule are
1: Sure, Brian. I mean, in its, its most basic elements, rule twenty three provides that in any class action, the plaintiff has to satisfy basically four requirements um, numerosity, commonality, typicality, and adequacy. And that's the first hurdle. If the plaintiff can get past that, then in addition, uh, in a class action for damages under rule twenty three B, the plaintiff has to satisfy. Two additional requirements, known as predominance and superiority, okay. those are the kind of the basic elements.
0: And then, um, getting into this case specifically, who uh, who are these plaintiffs? Who is Presenio? and what uh, what claims did they bring?
1: So, the plaintiffs are uh, consumers, private individuals who uh, purchased um, Wesson brand cooking oil products uh, manufactured by uh, Conagra that were affixed with a 100% natural label, and they filed class actions against Conagra all around the country, I think in 11 states, basically alleging that Conagra's labels were false and misleading because they were marketing the Wesson brand oil as all-natural when, in fact, they were made from bioengineered ingredients. The, the cases ultimately were consolidated, and COINFs moved to certify classes consisting of you know, all consumers who purchase these Western cooking oil products uh, during the relevant time period.
0: And above ConAgra's objection, the, the trial court did grant that Rule 23 certification motion. What were the, uh, the principal objections there from ConAgra, and what was the, the trial court's reasoning for why the class should be certified?
1: Well, ConAgra objected on a, a number of grounds, most notably that um, with respect to this particular class, um, a class shouldn't be certified because you couldn't identify the class and that it would uh, violate their due process. They relied primarily on a number of other circuit courts that required uh, that a class be administratively feasible and in a di- in not just um, the plaintiffs being able to satisfy Rule 23. The court rejected that and concluded that the plaintiff had satisfied all the requirements of Rule 23, and that the classes were ascertainable because they were objectively uh, defined. Uh, The court said that requiring administrative feasibility would, in the court's mind, undermine what it regarded as the policy that went to the very core of the class action mechanism. In other words, the district court held that at the certification stage, it's sufficient that the class can be defined by an objective criterion That is, whether the class members here purchased Wesson oil during the class period.
0: And any further inquiry as to how difficult it would be to actually find the members and to to muster them is sort of beyond the the call of the question here with Rule 23, the trial court is saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, in in broad terms, the court uh, basically is saying that, um, in addition to finding that all the enumerated prerequisites for class certification are satisfied, administrative feasibility is something that could be put off for another day. It's just not required at the class certification stage.
0: And now, speaking in in somewhat broad terms, let's get into the the Ninth Circuit ruling. The Ninth Circuit panel agreed. Could you, in in broad terms, lay out the ruling of the appellate panel here?
1: Well, they took a, a very narrow interpretation of Rule 23 based on a statutory interpretation. And as you say, affirmed the district court's ruling relying upon a principle known as expressio unius. (laughs) That's a tough one to say. (laughs) But what that basically means is that um, taking a strict statutory interpretation of Rule 23, uh, courts basically infer that a statute that expressly mentions one thing necessarily excludes anything that's not specifically mentioned. So here, the Ninth Circuit reasoned that because Rule 23 expressly provides for the specific prerequisites that I mentioned earlier, there are no other prerequisites that they aren't mentioned. So according to the court, because Rule 23 doesn't mention administrative feasibility, it's not required in order to certify a class. In addition, the court reasoned that reading an administrative feasibility requirement into Rule 23A would also render superfluous some of the language in, for example, Rule 23b3d, which requires courts to consider the likely difficulties in managing a class action.
0: Maybe before we get too much further, we could just highlight why this question is particularly important in a case like this, the question of administrative feasibility. We're talking about what exactly, when you talk about feasibility, finding um, members of the class getting them together. Why is it so challenging when we're talking about a case where the folks were buying a, a fairly inexpensive product? Uh,
1: when you're dealing with low-cost products like this, many consumers don't, for example, save their receipts. It's extremely difficult and can be very difficult to actually identify them. Um, and I think the court recognized that in its decision implicitly Um, acknowledge that in these low-cost consumer class actions like this one, you would be potentially barring a number of consumers who may have legitimate claims if the administrative feasibility requirement was engrafted onto Rule 23.
0: After doing that bit of statutory interpretation, the panel acknowledges that there are other circuits out there, for instance the Third Circuit that has addressed the same question and held differently, that before certifying, there should be some inquiry into how administratively feasible a class is. Um, What principally, and you've touched on them a a bit already, are the the primary concerns that a court like the the Third Circuit that's held differently on this question have with uh, allowing classes to be certified without looking into the feasibility?
1: Yeah, you're right, Brian. The court went out of its way to distinguish the uh, Third Circuit and the line of other circuits that follow the Third Circuit. Um, You know, the Ninth Circuit, in its opinion, explained that the Third Circuit justifies its administrative feasibility requirement, not necessarily through the text of Rule 23, but as a tool to ensure that the class will actually function as a class. So, for example, according to the Ninth Circuit, the Third Circuit suggests administrative feasibility is a prerequisite to achieve um, primarily three goals mitigating administrative burdens, um, safeguarding the interests of absent uh, class members, and protecting the due process rights of defendants. Those are the things that the Third Circuit is concerned about and why it requires administrative feasibility. But the Ninth Circuit rejected that approach for a number of reasons, um, including most notably that the Ninth Circuit believes that many of the concerns raised by the Third Circuit are already adequately addressed by Rule 23, and in particular, um, the uh, requirement that the class action mechanism be superior and there not be difficulties in managing a class action, as I mentioned under Rule 23B-3D. So those were some of the countervailing concerns that the court addressed with respect to the Third Circuit's approach
0: teasing out that last point about trial courts are already required by Rule 23 to make some inquiry into whether class action is the best mechanism. Is it superior to other modes of litigation to resolve a dispute? So the Ninth Circuit saying, well, that's, um, that's sort of already doing the work that an inquiry into administrative feasibility would do. In, in your opinion, do you think that that's a convincing argument, that looking into the, the superiority of the method does the same work that an administrative feasibility inquiry would do?
1: Well, it really depends on the nature of the case. I mean, you know, according to the Ninth Circuit, as you said, Rule 23 already contains a mechanism for courts to refuse to certify classes if the manageability concerns are too great. Um, but let's just focus on low-cost consumer class actions where courts really have to choose between two alternatives, each of which has its own shortcomings. I mean, under the Ninth Circuit's approach, if administrative feasibility is not required, you know, defendants are at a, have a much greater risk of a uh, fraud and having uh, their due process rights violated. You know, while absent class members risk not being compensated. On the other hand, requiring administrative feasibility makes it more difficult for plaintiffs uh, to pursue class actions in these low-cost type cases. You know, in my opinion, when you're dealing with low-cost consumer class actions, it really becomes less about compensating consumers and more about enriching plaintiff's lawyers. That, of course, is a defense lawyer's perspective. Uh, but that's, you know, that's really where the, the water divides on whether or not this is uh, is appropriate to require at the outset or not
0: the last point that you make that requiring administrative feasibility before class certification would, would make things fairly challenging for plaintiffs in cases like this, that's also a policy point that I think seems to be maybe of paramount importance to the panel here when they say that such a requirement would be outcome-determinative for cases like this, meaning just none of them would be certified. And so I guess would that create some worry that there would just be a, a gap in liability for Cases like this where a single plaintiff won't bring your suit over one can of Wesson oil. So really, class actions are the only feasible alternative.
1: Well, I think that is what the Ninth Circuit was concerned about. Um, But on the other hand, you know, there needs to be an appropriate gatekeeping mechanism at the outset of the case to ensure that class actions aren't certified, that down the road are going to be much too difficult to manage where there's going to be due process concerns that affect defendants and where there's going to potentially raise the prospects of fraudulent claims being filed by class members that aren't, in fact, part of the class and don't have legitimate claims. So that's the flip side of the coin.
0: I believe the panel did address those latter two concerns that you mentioned in terms of fraudulent claims and and due process concerns on the part of defendants. Um, Why, maybe taking the first one, did the panel not feel that it was such a big concern that either, one, it would be difficult to notice absent class members, or two, bona fide class members could have their their shares diluted by fraudulent uh, class members?
1: You know, the Ninth Circuit said two things. First, it took on the issue of notice and said that actual notice isn't required. Notice can be by publication. Um, and, but it didn't really address why that concerned uh, doesn't necessarily mandate a feasibility requirement. Um, you know, as far as the fraudulent claims, the court said that it believes individuals are unlikely to file fraudulent claims because the potential payout is so small. And the court basically reasoned that individuals you know, aren't going to risk a perjury charge for such a small payout, mm. um, noting that, you know, the defendants can still challenge individual plaintiffs. I think the court's probably correct that people are unlikely to file fraudulent claims, but the court really doesn't cite any studies or statistics to support this conclusion, and there really weren't any such statistics or studies cited by either party in the record. I think the court... On the other hand, really doesn't adequately address the issue of, um, as opposed to fraudulent claims, just mistaken claims. I mean, in my view, I doubt the average person can accurately remember how many times they purchased Weston brand cooking oil in the past five years, and whether the products were marked 100% natural. Yet those uh, consumers, uh, under this uh, ruling, are part of the uh, part of the class.
0: Does the same reasoning that the court gave that it's unlikely that folks would risk perjury charges to file fraudulent claims, does that also assuage somewhat the the due process concerns that defendants would have to defend against potentially um, large numbers of fraudulent claims?
1: I think it's just a completely separate issue. Um, You know, with respect to due process,
0: um, you know, that really deals with whether
1: or not uh, adequate notice can be provided if there's not an objectively feasible method for identifying class members, which was a big concern of Conagra in this case.
0: Okay, maybe looking now to the next step in this case or in other cases like it, the, this class is certified, the, and because of that, it certainly is nominally at least a win for the plaintiffs, but if the fact still remains that this is a, a sort of an administrative nightmare, of a class action to to bring and to manage, uh, it seems unclear to me just exactly how much the plaintiffs have benefited by this ruling, if it's still going to be just a huge hurdle and challenge to legitimately succeed um, with this class action and to find class members and to, to win their case.
1: Yeah, let's not forget that, um, and I think oftentimes this gets lost, um, despite the Ninth Circuit ruling, Conagra up through the point of trial can always bring a motion to decertify the class. Um, I expect, you know, this is still going to be a big problem for plaintiff's lawyers, not just in this case, Um, because as the Ninth Circuit recognized, despite its unwillingness to impose ascertainability or feasibility requirement, um, defendants can still vigorously challenge the claims of the named class representatives including attacking the plaintiff's claims for lack of standing if they can't prove that they've purchased the products or were exposed to the alleged misleading labels. And they can always uh, uh, make a challenge based on superiority or uh, manageability grounds. So although, you know, this looks like a nice victory for the plaintiffs, I don't think it necessarily gets them home. Um, There's still a lot of ammunition for the defendants to uh, use in their arsenal to uh, seek to both oppose certification and seek decertification up to the time of trial.
0: Do you think that other cases might end up being filed in within the Ninth Circuit after this ruling That in similar types of, of class actions?
1: Well, look, I think we've been seeing a significant uptick um, over the last few years. Plaintiffs are already bringing lots of cases like this, and I expect they'll continue to do so um, in these type of cases. Um, perhaps this circuit will further embolden them, but um, we've been seeing a significant uptick in these false advertising cases in any event um, over the last few years.
0: As an attorney that would advise often defendants in matters like this, what uh, what are the most important things that you would be advising them as a result of this ruling?
1: Um. Well, look, I think in the Ninth Circuit, although administrative feasibility is not going to be a formal prerequisite to class certification, um, defendants should still make the same type of arguments in opposing class certification that they would otherwise have been making um, uh, based on um, the other prerequisites that are available. They just need to reframe the arguments as manageability or superiority concerns and and um, highlight the concerns over due process, but instead of fashioning them as administrative feasibility, I think there still is room to argue that make the same arguments that are uh, set forth in Rule 23. So that that's kind of my takeaway.
0: Last one. It seems unlikely, judging from the pretty deep circuit split, that this will be the last word on this question. Do you imagine that uh, this ruling in the Ninth Circuit, cementing that split will push this question into the the Supreme Court in fairly short order?
1: Yeah, I I think, you know, President-elect Trump is going to be appointing, I think, within the first few weeks after he takes office, uh, a uh, a new Supreme Court justice, likely to be a conservative. I, I think, that there is, because there is now a real split in the circuits um, on this issue of ascertainability and administrative feasibility, um, I think, and this has been a real hot button in class action litigation, I think there's a pretty good chance this could end up in the Supreme Court. Um, you know, in particular, in light of the court's willingness over the last year or two to take up major cases, uh, like Dukes, you know, Comcast and Spokio. Um, I think there's a pretty good chance the court will weigh in on this issue.
0: Okay. Well, then we'll certainly stay tuned uh, for now. Neil Martyr, partner at Aiken Gump. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, bud. <laughs> Once more, that was Neil Marder, partner with Aiken Gump in the case of Brissigno versus Canagra Foods, and the circuit split deepened by the Ninth Circuit there. We'll turn now to a panel discussion with Laura Rutherford, Venable LLP, and Rich Bridgeford and Mike Artinian from Bridgeford, Gleason, and Artinian. We'll be discussing the employment law matter recently down from the California Supreme Court, Augustus first ABM security. A signal victory for the class of plaintiffs there, and a seemingly bright-line rule against employers requiring employees to be on call during state mandated rest breaks. We're happy to be joined on the podcast now by three guests who likely will bring somewhat differing opinions to the California Supreme Court case. We're chatting about from Venable LLP, we have partner Laura Rutherford, who principally practices on the management side of labor disputes. And then from Bridgeford Gleason, and Artinian, we have Richard Bridgeford and Mike Artinian, who often find themselves on the, the plaintiff side of the aisle in cases such as this. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for being on the podcast.
2: Thanks a lot for having us. Thank you.
0: We'll go ahead and get right into it. The case we're discussing is Augustus v. ABM Security. This was a, a California Supreme Court case from December with uh, seemingly massive impacts in the world of labor law impacting employers and employees and certainly their attorneys. Um, Laura, let's start with you. Could you tell me a bit about who these these plaintiffs are and the labor practice they were complaining over?
2: Sure. Augustus was a security guard who worked for ABM Security. And the security guards were arguing that they were not provided with lawful rest periods under California law, uh, and specifically when they were required to carry pagers and cell phones with them so that they could be on call during the rest periods, they argued that this did not, in fact, comply with the law because they were not given the break, the rest break that they believed they were entitled to under the labor code and the wage orders.
0: We'll move into those now, speaking of the law that is pertinent here. There's a couple of moving pieces that seem to do some work. Richard, there's uh, Industrial Wage Commission's Wage Order 4, and there's Labor Code Section 226.7, both pertaining to, to rest breaks and prescriptions for them. Can you tell me a bit about these two pieces of authority and how they fit together in this case?
3: Yeah, well, broadly speaking, you know, I think the, the court was doing the best job it could to piece those together. But the, the bottom line is that the case represents, in our opinion, uh, an expansion of the rights of the employees, whereas in a, a case like the Brinker case, you had um, an actual eating time period that is uncompensated. Here, you have a rest period that's compensated. And there, I think there was an opportunity for the court to uh, push this towards the defense, but instead. I view this as an expansion of the rights of the employees. They went out of their way and re- reasoned almost directly contrary to the appellate court that, you know, rest is rest. And in my opinion, that's something that an attorney, in particular, ought to be able to understand. Um, if you're on call, you're not at rest. You're you're occupied. But for me, the reality is. That what the court recognized in putting together those two pieces is that we need to have a bright line here. If it's a rest period, even though it's compensated, that we're not going to go down the slippery slope of what's a de minimis interference. They get 10 minutes rest. They get 10 minutes rest. Period.
0: We'll get sort of more into unpacking the the meat of the opinion in just a second. But just just speaking ab- about. Wage order four and section two two six point seven. Um, the the former says there there must be compensated rest periods, correct? And then, the the latter section two two six point seven says no work can be required during them. Um, and so I guess the the upshot of, of that Laura, is that it seems like one question that that comes up. Um, and the court breaks this down into two posed questions: one, whether off duty um, rest periods must be, must be provided. And um, then second, whether employers can require employees to remain on call during those uh, off-duty rest periods. But that seems to sort of combine into one question, which is essentially whether employees on rest breaks can remain on call. Is that a fair surmise?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, they overlap, but there's a reason that they're separated, right? In the first, one, it, the first question sort of sets the standard, whether employees must, in fact, be relieved of all duty. And then if, that's, if that answer is yes, um, then whether or not on call being on call actually relieves them of duty or not. So there is a sort of legal, you know, reason to separate the two. But of course, practically speaking, it, for purposes of this case, it's it's one question.
3: Yeah, and, and my point, succinctly stated, is on call is not rest; it's work.
0: That's what the the trial court found here. Originally, they awarded a ninety million dollar summary judgment to the plaintiffs, but the the court of appeal reversed. What was the Court of Appeals reasoning as to why this $90 million award should not have been given?
3: Well, I, I think it's, they're looking at the exact same thing, and it's really, it's really more your political bent. They look at it and they say, being on call doesn't mean you're not capable of rest, and it's sort of de minimis. That, that's what's really underlying their decision. And I think the Supreme Court said, BS, you know, if this guy is on call, he's not at rest. And I think kind of lurking behind this is, come on, 10 minutes every three and a half hours, you know, you got to like lean on these poor guys. They got to be on call. Give them a break. I grew up in a blue collar uh, working family, uh, you know, a business and worked in a factory in a meat factory. And I can tell you that, that we would never have thought of irritating somebody on their break period actually surprised that the appellate court came to the conclusion that it did.
0: Laura, as you read it, why did the Court of Appeals feel that it was okay for employees on the rest breaks to remain on call?
2: Right. I think that the Court of Appeals, um, you know, they read the text of the Labor Code, and which says you're not supposed to require employees work. I'm not so sure that this all turns on, on rest, per se. Um, the Court of appeal found that being on call was not enough to constitute work. And it cited to a lot of authority that, that stands for that proposition. So not that this would surprise you, but I, I agree with the court of appeal. They, they, I think they got it right. And uh, there was a lot of evidence in this case in particular that uh, the the workers did not have their breaks interrupted and did not forgo a break because they were on call. And, you know, just to respond, because I, I think it's an interesting point about the factory worker, you know, we're, we live in an age where uh, employees rec- carry cell phones and pagers all the time, and uh, you know, requiring someone to to respond to something in an emergency is is not, in my opinion, work. I think that there's a lot of authority to support that, and and really, that was the court of appeals reasoning: is that there is a sliding scale; it's industry dependent. Brinker supports that proposition, and uh, here there was evidence that people didn't lose breaks because they were on call.
3: The way I look at it is pretty simple and I think the Supreme Court did and they got it right. You can look at the detriment to the employee. If he has to remain on call, he's distracted from texting his kid, you know, or whatever it is. So it imposes a detriment on the employee. On the other hand, you can look at the benefit to the employer. These people are supposed to be resting. They're they're not supposed to be providing any benefit to the employer. Now, if an employer feels that they can contact these guys on their breaks, now they have an incentive, rather than during the time in which these people are supposed to be cranking out widgets for them, to impose on their break. And the standard that was discussed in the case, Mike pointed this out.
4: Mike, go ahead and make your point. I think the what the court really focused on is some of the language in Brinker and about how the employee... Uh, is under the employer's control any the employee is on call. So when we're discussing whether or not there's an uninterrupted period of rest for 10 minutes, and to Laura's point, the, the issue is really what if at five minutes into the break, there's a call that comes in. It's undisputed that nowadays there's pagers, phones, Everybody carries those, but the real issue is whether or not the employee has an uninterrupted period of rest for 10 minutes. And if that gets interrupted and the employee cannot engage in other activities for a 10 minute period as planned, that is not a rest period.
0: Laura, that did seem to be sort of a focus of the the majority opinion here written by Justice Cuellar that a rest period, maybe defined in its most natural sense, is a period of time where the employee can do whatever he or she wants, take a, a walk five minutes out and back, conduct some phone calls, arrange some personal matters, and that those opportunities might be curtailed if the employee is cognizant that he, he or she could be called back at any point. Why, why do you think that, that even though that possibility exists, the employee could still enjoy a, a prescribed rest period in those 10 minutes?
2: Right, so I think that, and, you know, just to go back a step to your first point about they're tethered, you know, to the to the employer when, when they're on call, I mean, there's case law in support of the proposition that employers can actually require employees to remain at the premises during a, a rest break, which is unlike a meal break. And I think the contrast between rest breaks and meal breaks here is very important, um, and this is where I agree with the Court of Appeal reasoning and the dissent, um, you know, which says... Look, these people are being paid during the rest break. Yes, it is the employer's obligation to provide a 10-minute rest break, but I think that there's something to the fact, and the court of appeal said this too: these rest breaks are paid, and so there there is nothing stopping um, an employee from picking up the break later if if necessary. Uh, of course, an employee is is free to you know to choose to to do whatever they want to do on on 10 minutes, but simply being on call. It's not tethering anybody to do anything. It's just noting that a call came in, maybe answering a quick call. And as the Court of Appeal recognized, it's and and the dissent, it wasn't work. Um, and I think that that's really what this comes down to. And when when appellate courts are asked to construe statutes, they are supposed to look at you know at language such as what is work. Here, the majority looked at well, what does rest mean, and they've sort of decided that the dictionary definition of rest, ipso facto means they cannot even think about work. And I'm just not sure that that's true. I think the fact that these rest breaks are paid and have always been paid, I think there's something to that and, and that to suggest that these employees could be asked to respond to some to an employer inquiry on their rest break um, and uh, and I think the fact that employers are also allowed to allow to require employees to take their rest breaks on the premises uh, supports that proposition.
3: Well, a couple points there, Laura makes a good point. Thinking is work. That's what attorneys get paid to do, and they bill their time for it. Thinking is work. And so to require somebody to have to be on call and available, right, and thinking about the employer's next move and what the employer wants next is work. It's not rest. The other thing is that there are very good reasons why, Employers are able to require people to be on premises for 10-minute rest periods Such as it's virtually impossible to get back to your job on time if you leave the premises And in, in some manufacturing Industries particularly the food industry which I was involved with there's hygiene issues And in this day and age, there's also security issues. So it makes perfect sense on the one hand for someone to be required to remain on-premises during a paid rest period, but on the other hand, for the employer not to be able to exercise control over that person during that period.
0: One point that we referenced a little bit a couple of times so far is that rest breaks are compensated, and I bring that up because it seems to cut both ways, or it seems to be something that's used by the majority and the dissent as a support for their, their their positions. Um, on the one side, perhaps if imp- an employer is compensating an employee, that might suggest that perhaps it could wield uh, some level of control, more so than in like in Brinker, where we're talking about meal periods that are not compensated. But uh, Justice Cuellar actually, for the majority, says, hey, the fact that the statute makes clear, the wage order makes clear that these breaks are compensated, even though you no know, work can be required, sort of suggests that they wouldn't have stressed that unless you know, it, it really was the case that no work could be required. Um, I guess, how do you guys feel about the, the, that distinction, that rest breaks are compensated as opposed to meal breaks in, in Brinker?
3: I agree no. with the latter that you characterized that they would not have gone out of their way to state that there can't be any work and that they have to be paid, okay, when you can screw that all together. If it wasn't the intention that they must be paid and they don't have to work. But on a bigger level, I think when you read this together with Brinker, this is what sort of warms the cockles of my heart, is that you've blown out of the water any future argument by the defense bar that the fact that somebody is uh, being paid means the employer can impose on them more. Because Brinker was unpaid eating periods, whereas this is paid rest periods. And one thing's for certain, after this decision by the Supreme Court, ain't going to be anybody who can argue that because you're being paid, they can lean on you in some de minimis or greater way.
2: I mean, I, I agree with the, you know, the reasoning of the of the dissent where they say, look, there's no relief of duty requirement in the wage order for rest breaks, and I think that that's why they're paid. And I, uh, you know, and that's really, to me, it's a relatively simple point that, that seemed to get a little too complicated in the majority decision.
3: I, I just I just don't get that at all. I mean, I really don't get it. To me, if, you know, if I'm on vacation with my family and and, you know, Somebody says, Well, maybe you can call in. I mean, how relaxed are you? You know, I'm working. That's not rest. But
2: I think that that's why all the courts have said, you know, it's an industry specific question. And here, this was security guards, and the dissent did recognize an emergency situation that could require someone to check their pager. I agree that, you know, or I think that there are situations where certainly someone, you know, would be kind of senseless to require certain employees to be on call in certain industries, but here, with a security job, um, where emergencies could happen, it's, and it's these guards' responsibilities to handle those emergencies, I don't really see the harm, and I don't see that it, this, it's really an intrusion just to check a pager. They can look at it, they can decide with their own judgment that, oh, hey, I don't really need to deal with this till after my break. So that millisecond of checking a pager could easily be inconsequential. And yet necessary. Moore
3: makes a great point and I think that's what underlies the ultimate decision here. In a broader context, this goes to the whole issue of of wage inequality for these blue collar workers. Are you going to tell me that an employer doesn't have the ability to cover an emergency without Joe Blow being on in contact and available and on call? For that 10 minutes in this technological age, this is really about the employer attempting to shift the economic liability and the cost onto the employee. It's cheaper for them to have him on call, but if they're required to uh, comport with the statute and give him true rest, they have to go out and spend some money to figure out how to cover for that emergency. Another person, another technological device, another camera, whatever, to cover for the emergency. But it's not like in this context, they're incapable of covering for the emergency.
0: I think it might be
2: unnecessary to have two bodies just for 10 minutes, and I think that the history of the wage order reflects that. That there are times when people are working by themselves, but, and that's the nature of the job. And to bring someone in for 10 minutes Sure, it might increase the cost, but ultimately, it's society that suffers from that cost, not just one employer.
3: That's a question of elasticity of supply and demand. Uh, Well, sure. What happens is you're shifting a cost to the employee or the employer, and the other person is benefiting. The net economic effect is a wash.
2: But I think, like people in this industry, for example, that's how the that's how the money works, right? The client pays the company, the company pays the workers, someone's getting hit with this when it might truly only be necessary to have one guard on duty at any given time.
3: Right. And so the way I view that, Laura, is it really quite simply is the law, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, requires that this is a cost of doing business already for the employer and that the employer is unfairly attempting to shift that cost of doing business to the employee it's like lowering his wages because he's already entitled to rest and a wage now he's getting a wage and no rest because he's being required to work more
2: right what you what it comes down to is what is work right and that's what the majority or the the minority has has identified is that if carrying a pager and having to check it is work then you would win but if it's not considered work which I think a lot of people think it isn't then, you know, we're not, there's no cost shifting at all. And it's really the value of that 10 seconds to check when something.
3: When you receive an email on your cell phone on vacation on a case and you read it, you bill for that,
2: it's work. I mean, I'm not talking about my industry. I'm talking about the industry in Augustus. Uh, these questions are answered on an industry-by-industry industry basis, and, and the court even says that. So I'm really not and prepared to talk about lawyers because they're not an issue.
3: time is billable and of value, but this blue collar guy—it's no skin off his nose to be made to be requiring him to be available. His time doesn't really matter. He he should just eat it because I'm not going to eat it if my client contacts me on vacation. He's going to get a bill. This well, that guy, makes you a
2: lot different than someone who isn't a lawyer. <laughs> That, I mean, it's just a different industry, and that's the point.
3: I think that the court has clearly ruled that there's a, uh, a time value to what they're doing, and that if you want them to be on call, you're requiring their time. And they're, they're
2: being money, paid for that time.
3: Yeah, but the law is they got to pay for not the work, but the rest.
2: Right. And if it's not work, it's rest. And that's, again, that's where we seem to disagree.
0: The minority notes here, Justice Kruger notes that as we're describing rest breaks being interrupted and employees called back to duty in the record of this case, it seems like that occurrence either occurred very seldom or or not at all, that in fact mm-hmm. the employees were not actually Ever called back to work, um, and also there's another point that was brought up in the court of appeal, and and by the majority and minority that um, once the rest break is interrupted, it, it is true that a, f- a future rest break will then be given to to make up for that rest the uh, one that was interrupted. Is that uh, is that true, Laura?
2: Yeah, and the, um, I think in certain industries, I wasn't clear whether or not that happened in this case, but it's certainly you you can do it. Employers are allowed to do that. Or they can compensate the employee if the rest break was truly missed.
3: She's correct, but I think the court got this right, and that is the whole issue that Mike pointed out, control. I mean, come on. We got a deal. This is a time that I need to be able to count on is my rest period. In this 10 minutes, I told my kid that I'm going to call him at 9.05 because I get from 9 to 9.10. And now my employer wants to jack around my rest period. He wants to take that time and give me some other time. Well, now I can't call my, my kid. And you know, now my kid hates me, right? Because I don't, I don't stay in touch with him. My work's more important than my kid. and He doesn't understand that. <laughs> that's the epitome of control right there.
2: I think the that's law allows that. what our clients
3: have over <laughs> us, Laura. And that's why we get paid more than security guards.
2: Well, I, I think it's, a, again, it's a lot different in our industry.
0: Maybe just one, one last one about the minority opinion here. Uh, there are some practical concerns on the other side of this balance. So even if you know, as a, a policy prophylactic matter, Justice Kruger says this might be a good rule to make sure that it's a, a bright line rule that employers cannot interrupt rest breaks. But there, there may be instances. And there may be industries like a security guard industry where there might be just one person on duty because that's it's a, a parking lot late at night. There's just one person, say. And then if there is an emergency where the person needs to get called back, um, there are just other policy considerations on, on the other side here to, to worry about. And so just requiring on-call workers then will get either a premium rate or another break later uh, wouldn't be such a big deal considering what's on the other side of the the balance why do you think that's not a big enough concern richard
3: i don't think it's a big enough concern because i think that given the relative bargaining power of employers and employees that if you open that door it's going to be abused it's going to be abused now we got the emergency exception that's going to be so easy for them to trample all over that and you know it it just doesn't work and if you want to talk about He gets into the practicalities. Well, let's talk about the practicalities. If we pass instead the rule that did get passed, that they can't interfere, and we have a situation where with a security guard, there's a burglar and he's on his break, come on, let's be real. The guy's going to deal with it because it's in his interest to deal with it. How's he going to know if no
2: one told, if he can't be notified, though?
3: And then there's the other point I made, which I think is the big one. And that is, in this technological age, and I'm not a a great techie, there are ways that they can cover for this. It's just a question of who's going to pay. Are you going to impose on the employee who's already at the bottom of the food chain, or are you going to impose on the employer?
0: I think, Laurie, this is a a good point as to... Um, how a, a security guard in this instance might re- respond if they are you know, forbidden from being notified by the employer that any, anything...
2: Right. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't... I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, I would query how the security guard would even be notified of a burglar if he wasn't allowed to carry a pager or a cell phone, you know. And I think that, you know, it, it, I, I've said it already, The, the, the a categorical cor- rule in this instance could be dangerous depending on the industry, and that's what the minority held. And I think that's why the the purpose that she stated I- isn't enough because you just, there are many factual circumstances where a cell phone or a pager um, would be necessary and required, and I'm not sure a security camera alone would be enough. If you can't reach someone when they're on their break, I don't know how they would be able to deal with, with a situation like that.
4: I think the Supreme Court uh, majority opinion did address that. I mean, they, they said that employers can either provide the employees with another rest period to replace one that was interrupted, or pay the premium. Um, so I think the the simple answer is pay the premium. I mean, that's 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 what Rich's point was uh, before is that they're already getting paid for a period of rest. So the question is whether or not that employee should be paid, uh, or uh, should be paid a premium for that rest period being interrupted and or having a a rest period rescheduled.
2: So are you suggesting Mike that the the rule is then you could still carry pager or, or cell phone but you the employer should be paying you the extra hour of pay?
4: I think that that's what the Supreme Court contemplated here as the response to the defense side saying that in certain industries you know, there may be a requirement for on-call. And to Rich's point, I really think it's a it's a matter of economics. And the employee already has the uninterrupted period of rest for 10 minutes that's compensated. So what's the answer to that? I think the policy here that the Supreme Court has implemented is quite clear. That that is already compensated for that 10 minutes of rest and that should be uninterrupted by having to be on-call. So, and I think that the Supreme Court also uh, identified the fact that the IWC was capable of authorizing on-call rest periods in certain circumstances, such as in Wage Order 5. Um, and they did that in that situation, but not under Wage Order 4. So, I think there's various ways to address this.
0: Maybe one good way to start to conclude here is just to sum up exactly what the rule is now, um, exactly what the California Supreme Court now is, is requiring of employees in, in this context, Have we expanded Brinker and just applied that to rest breaks, that uh, no interruption can be undertaken, or what uh, What exactly is the rule now here, uh, Laura?
2: Right, so, you know, the Brinkert case is, is slightly different than what was discussed here. There were two separate decisions, and Augustus made clear that they, you know, they were considering a different question. I think the rule is always that employers have to provide rest breaks, um, and I think the rule is you, you should not interrupt rest breaks. Um, this court has made, or you know, is saying that employees who are being required to be on call by carrying a cell phone or pager arguably are not being provided with a rest break because they're being required you know to be on call um and so it's sort of a rule you probably should not have your employees on call during rest breaks um i think it remains to be seen how courts determine the or i'm sorry interpret the word interrupted because i think what mike stated is actually a good point is that while this court is saying you know on call means you're not resting I understand that. Um, For people that are never interrupted, and let's say they're just carrying a cell phone and an employer knows that they can reach them, I'm not sure what the rule is on that, (laughs) if the the employee just has their phone. So I think big picture policy, I think we're, we have, there's a lot more work to do, and I don't think that there is going to be as bright a line as um, Mike and Rich might think.
4: I think in the conclusion of the opinion uh, I'll just state what the court said here I think it is pretty clear it says uh, what's required instead is that employers relinquish any control over how employees spend their break time and relieve their employees of all duties including the obligation that an employee remain on call so inherent therein I think is a bright line rule that if You know, Laura's client wants to require uh, an employee to carry a cell phone and requires that employee to answer a call if they get it during that 10-minute period. That's in violation of this decision. I
3: I think his going into the dictionary definition of what rest is and work is is pretty clear.
4: To me, that's a bright line. Rest is rest. One thing is interesting, uh, you know, in the decision, and I'm sure this will be discussed further, as Laura was kind of intimating, is the the indication there. It says nothing in our holding circumscribes an employer's ability to reasonably reschedule a rest period when the need arises. That, to me, I believe, is probably going to be the source of further litigation, further discussion and advice by Laura to her clients about how the employers should structure their rest policy. Okay. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think that's right. I
2: guess we'll see
0: how it plays out. Uh, Laura, do you think that any of the work that might still be coming to, uh, in terms of int- interpreting this rule, might come from the, the state legislature who had uh, you know, written the, one of the sections analyzed here? Could they mm-hmm. be more clear and say, okay, on-call isn't work or yes, on-call is work? Do you think that's possible or would be helpful?
2: You know, it, it might be helpful. I query whether that's the case. We typically don't see a lot of sort of employer side clarifications. Uh, that does. It's not to say that it, it shouldn't be there. I mean, you know, in my experience, I've always believed that there was a slightly lesser standard for the rest breaks, uh, especially because if they were paid, um, I think there's law and opinion letters to support that. Um, so, you know, my answer is I don't know. I certainly have not heard of anything coming down the pike. But, you know, as Augustus argued, and I think was pointed out the decision, you know, this is a this is a radical change in the rest period law. And so I don't think it's, it's going to be just, you know, accepted wholeheartedly. I think we're going to find workarounds. and uh, And if the legislature steps in, then, you know, that would be great.
3: If the legislature steps in, I think it would be to clearly codify the opinion of the Supreme Court, uh, maybe clean up the language. But I, I really don't believe that's necessary. I think the court has laid down a bright line. And I think that in the discussion of Brinker and the decision, that it's now pretty clear that employers can't cannot argue that because the rest period is paid versus the eating period not being paid, that um, they somehow are entitled to make de minimis impositions on the employee's time. I think that's the real impact of this case, is that when you line it up with those other decisions, it it completely guts any argument that the defense can ever make about paid versus non-paid time.
0: Certainly, it sounds like a a very impactful ruling, one that I imagine employers and employees are are quite cognizant of. And uh, that seems like the last word perhaps hasn't been written. But for now, we'll we'll leave it there. And uh, thank you to all our guests, Laura Rutherford, Richard Bridgeford, and Mike Artinian. I appreciate you guys joining the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. And with that, our program for January 13th, 2017, is complete. I'd like to take the opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to all of my guests Neil Martyr from Aiken Gump, Laura Rutherford from Venerable LLP, and Rich Bridgeford and Mike Artinian from Bridgeford, Gleason, and Artinian. I should thank members of my production staff here, including Ellen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, and Nick Sonnenberg, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardyle. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.